Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start by reading in verse 26, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we ask you now to illumine our hearts that we might receive all that God has for us today. Help us, Lord, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Don't let us be just hearers, for we deceive ourselves. Help us to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls and the souls of those who hear us. Change us, we pray by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being seated. Well, last Saturday, the pastors had the privilege of conducting yet another Exploring Grace City class. Exploring Grace City uh, is, uh, one of, is our membership class, and it's always a highlight for us uh, as we come together and reflect on the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God these years. The class consists of three sessions, and in the second class, Aaron, Pastor Aaron uh, teaches on our beliefs and our values, those distinctives that make us, uh, set us off from other churches, you might say. Uh, in Wilmington. And one of the outcomes of having a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines that we're built on, is that a, a mission or a goal springs out of those doctrines. And we call this, if you're in the corporate world, you know what it is. It's a mission statement. A mission statement. You can see our mission statement is recorded here, listed for us on the side. We keep it on the stage all the time. Uh, Aaron said that uh, when we were planning for the church, we sat for days thinking about our mission statement, and it was in the Bible the whole time. 
what's the mission of the church? What, what, where did we get this from? Why does the church exist? Well, the church exists for worship, which is where we get that make much of Jesus part. We exist to make much of Jesus, and the fruit of that worship is twofold. It's discipleship, where we grow up in Christ together as we gather in community, as Aaron said before he introduced Aileen, and then also mission. That worship should translate into mission, where we love our neighbors in our city. This is who we are, friends. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a member of Grace City Church. And if you take away any of these things, you lose biblical Christianity. These are the fundamental realities of our faith. But as always, if we're honest, in the busyness of life with work and with school and with parenting, it's easy, isn't it, to drift in our mission, to mission drift. We get bogged down in activity, even good activity, even godly activity like personal discipleship, personal devotion. But it's easy in all of our activity to forget that to be a Christian, the very nature of what it means to be a Christian is not just our own discipleship. It's the discipleship of others. Jesus, you know, famously commanded his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 to go, go into the world and make disciples, baptize people, teach them to obey his word. Peter, one of the 12, later wrote, you have been chosen to proclaim his excellencies, his glory. Friends, to be a Christian is to be a proclaimer of the glory of Christ to the end that those who listen become disciples just like you and me. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, tells a story of a Chinese pastor who strongly encouraged every new convert of his to begin sharing the gospel immediately after uh, they were saved. Right after God saved them, they were to go out and begin sharing the gospel. One day this pastor met with a young man, a new convert in his church, and uh, he asked him, hey, how is evangelism going? And the new convert said, well, you know, not too well, but after all, I'm, I'm just a learner anyway. And so the pastor paused for a minute, and he began to look around the room, and he pointed at a candle that was burning. And he asked the new convert, he said, let me ask you, when does a candle begin to shine? When it's already half burned up? And the young man said, well, no, as soon as it's lit. So the the pastor said, that's right, young man. The Lord doesn't expect you and me to be full-fledged preachers, but he does expect you to be a faithful witness. So let your light shine right away. Well, here we've come across in chapter 8 to Philip. Chapter 8 is taken up by this man, Philip, and he is an example of a faithful witness. Now, like Stephen, he's a little bit different than we are. God called him for a unique time in the early church, but in the ways that counts, he's no different than you and me. Like Philip, Christians have, listen, been thrice chosen by God. We were first chosen by God to believe in Jesus for salvation. Secondly, we've been chosen by God to belong to and serve in a local church. And third, we've been chosen to be 
faithful witnesses to Jesus of Jesus to others. And of course, this serving and this witnessing will look different in each of our lives. But again, friends, this is who we are. Today, as we look at verses 26 to 40, I'd like us to consider what it means to be a faithful witness to Christ, to become a faithful witness to Christ. This is the title of my sermon, by the way, if you're taking notes. I've chosen the word becoming because uh, evangelism is one of those areas that most of us, if we're honest, need to grow in, and especially me. I'm just going to put myself out on the table here today. I'm going to come alongside you and say, this is an area I really, really desire to grow in. So the key word there is becoming, becoming. I've shared at some point before about the time I was able to meet Matt Chandler and make a total fool of myself. And I'll share you that story some other time if you don't know the story. But I approached him because he was preaching in this particular conference on the subject of evangelism. And since I struggle with that and I happened to be near him, I approached him and I said, please tell me, give me something that can help me out. I'm struggling in this area. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, remember, Paul, Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, 2 Timothy 4.5. Paul knew that Timothy was timid. He wasn't a called and, and, and gifted evangelist like Philip was. And so Paul said, you may not be called to be an evangelist, but you are called to do the work of an evangelist as a Christian, to bear faithful witness to Christ as a Christian because that's who we are. So friends, as we evaluate Philip's life in this particular story, if we struggle with doing this particular work, what can we learn about becoming a faithful witness to Christ as we live as Christians in this world? How can we, how can we do the work of Philip? You'll notice the very last word in our passage is the word Caesarea, If you look later into chapter 21, we'll encounter Philip one more time in the book. Philip has been living in Caesarea all those years. And so as Philip is continuing to be faithful in his ministry, I imagine us approaching his porch and Philip is sitting out on his rocking chair. And we come up to Philip and we say, Philip, please give me some pointers. You're a faithful evangelist. How can I grow in this area? What advice would you give to me? And so I imagine Philip giving three pieces of advice based on this passage that we just read. I'm going to go over those with you. The first thing that he would say is to yield to the Holy Spirit's leading. Yield to the Holy Spirit's leading, verses 26 to 29. Now, if you were here last week or if you've read this story recently, Uh, When we left Philip, you remember that he was in Samaria, and what was he doing? He was preaching the gospel, and he was performing miracles, and a revival broke out in the city of Samaria. Dozens of people came to faith in Jesus. Lives were transformed. The city was filled with joy, and this had to have, this must have stirred Philip's faith as he saw all the Lord was doing. And so I imagine Philip at the end of a long day was laying down and he was reflecting on the goodness and the faithfulness of God after a fruitful day of teaching. And all of a sudden, Luke tells us that an angel appeared. 
And the angel said simply to Philip, Philip, get up and hop on the Gaza road heading south from Jerusalem, which Luke is careful to add, this was a desert place. Now, I think it's important that we pause here and think about, friends, how odd this command might have been, or at least how odd it would have been for us. We who have followed Jesus for many years know there's hardly a time when we feel more joy in the Christian life than at those times when God is using our faithfulness to have an effect on the lives of others. And so we might be forgiven for thinking if we were Philip, if maybe somehow the line between heaven and earth got crossed somewhere, when the angel appeared and said, hey, I want you to leave the bubbling well of Samaria and I want you to head into the barren wasteland of the desert. Ultimately, Luke doesn't divulge Philip's thoughts on that front. He simply says in verse 27 that faithful Philip rose and went. Now, the road Philip traveled was a well-worn path. That road that went down from Jerusalem down to the coast to through Gaza, uh, traveled all the way down into Egypt and south into Africa. From Jerusalem to Gaza, Philip would have traveled on foot for 60 miles. Again, I'm speculating here, but what was this old man thinking? Or young man, I don't know how old he was. I could imagine what I'd be thinking. What am I doing? I definitely didn't wear the right sneakers. I'm tired. Why did the Lord take me out of my place of greatest profitability and put me into a desert where I have no support and I'm vulnerable? Philip had to at least have been uncomfortable but I'm speculating. So Philip is making his way. And he spots what appears to be a, a royal entourage, a, a caravan. And Luke, the author, tells us that this caravan is carrying a, a eunuch. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, go ahead and look it up later. But a eunuch, who, this man was a, a man of high position. He was a, the chancellor or the treasurer of the court of Candace, which, by the way, that's not a personal name. That's more of a title like Caesar or Pharaoh but she was the queen of Ethiopia. And according to the Old Testament, she's in the, the African kingdom of, of Cush. And Cush was actually south of Egypt, probably more in the modern-day country of Sudan, not in Ethiopia where we might think it is. But apparently this chancellor of the crown had traveled to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and he was returning home. Now, we're not given much information about him. Maybe he was a Jew by birth. Maybe his family was of the dispersion, and so he was a Jew. But more than likely, he was not. More than likely, he was a black African who had somehow heard of the, the good news, excuse me, the God of the Jews, rather, and he came to Jerusalem to explore this God, to learn more about this God. Now, as a eunuch, you have to understand According to Moses' law in Deuteronomy 23, he would have been forbidden to enter into the temple. He would have had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. But as someone of prominence, 
He had the means of getting to Jerusalem, of course, and he even picks up, we're told, a scroll of Isaiah, which would have been very expensive to come by. So here's Philip, his feet are tired, and he sees this caravan, and the Spirit of the Lord says, go, join his chariot. The chariot was moving at a walking pace because Philip is able to run up alongside of the chariot, and there's the scene. Now, for all the questions that we might have at this point, let's not fail to miss what Luke, the author, is doing here. Luke is getting ready to highlight the conversions of three individuals over the course of the next three chapters. Philip in chapter 8, Saul in chapter 9, and the and Cornelius the Gentile in chapter 10. In each of these chapters, he is careful to emphasize that there is an invisible hand at the control of the hearts of each that is converted. In other words, the Spirit of God is highlighted as the one who saves every one of these people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout chapter 8, a careful observer sees this hand directing Philip's every step. We see the Lord sending him first to Samaria by way of persecution in Jerusalem. We then see him taking Philip from a place of supposed fruitfulness and to the desert, sending him to the desert. We see him organizing the eunuch's travel schedule so that Philip's arrives, or Philip arrives there at just the right time to meet with him. We even see the Lord putting a scroll of Isaiah into the eunuch's hand, and he just happens to be reading the most gospel-rich, Jesus-centered passage in the entire Old Testament, Isaiah 53. I think God's setting him up, don't you? Friends, evangelism, here's the point, evangelism begins with God. Evangelism starts with God behind the scenes, changing calendars and people's plans and preparing hearts, all so that he can bring his witnesses face to face with the people that he wants to save. Friends, let's face it, when it comes to evangelism, we are often so afraid that we don't do it at all. We're afraid of sounding weird. We're afraid of, afraid of not knowing how to answer people's questions. And so we either wrongly comfort our fears by telling ourselves, you know what, God's sovereign. He's going to save whoever he wants to save anyway. And so we don't share our faith. Or we burden ourselves with the belief that this person's eternal destination depends on me alone and so I walk through my days always feeling guilty, always feeling condemned, because I'm always failing to share when I have the opportunity. Friends, both perspectives are rooted in unbelief and bad theology. Friends, we need to harmonize in our minds the twin realities that, one, God is not limited by our failures in evangelism. Oh, please get that down. But number two, he chooses to save people by means of human agency. We just said, talked, someone mentioned this in our prayer meeting this morning here. Every one of us were saved because someone spoke to us about the gospel. Every single one of us. Yes, God is sovereign over salvation. Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Romans 9.18, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. 
But if he is sovereign over salvation, that also means he's sovereign over the means of salvation. And so it pleases God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21. And that means my preaching. That means your preaching. That means whomever he sets up to be a preacher to that particular person. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer concludes for us, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. So friends, if salvation, if the salvation of others begins and ends with God, then what are his favorite tools to use? His favorite tools are to use our vulnerability and our weaknesses and our fears. Because my Bible says in the New Testament that he is going to get the glory, not me and you. Friends, woe to us if we are confident and sharing about the way of salvation with our neighbors. Friends, the moment we begin to feel confident and satisfied, God will often remove us into a spiritual wasteland, just like he did Philip. Why? Because he does not want us to rely on anything but the Holy Spirit. Not our knowledge, not our speaking ability, nothing but him. Friends, do you see his leading in your life? Do you see him putting you in the places that you are in? Do you see that hidden hand behind the scenes putting people on your well-worn paths? As you think of them, do you feel weak? Do you feel inadequate? Do you feel lacking in knowledge about the way of salvation? Friends, I just want to say to you, if you feel that way, good Rejoice in the Lord. Listen, God doesn't prefer to use professionals anyway. He'd rather use weak people, but people whose spiritual frequencies are tuned into heaven's airwaves and who are ready for the spirit to move. So we see Philip in his rocking chair. And the first piece of advice he gives is, listen, yield to the spirit's leading. Okay, Philip, what's next then? What's your next piece of advice? I got my notes out. Okay, number two, here's here's what you need to do. Open the door for the gospel. Point number two, open the door for the gospel. So here's the eunuch. The temple is in his rear view mirror. There he saw animals being killed and sacrificed. There he saw smoke from the altar perpetually rising up to heaven. So as he thinks about these things, he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read, which is Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. You know, verses and chapters were not added until much later. 
right around the 1200s AD or so. But he happens to be here in verse 7. Like a sheep, verse 32, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This court official thinks to himself, who is this prophet talking about? He's not talking about the animals and the sacrifices that I just saw. He's talking about a man. Before that, he would have read Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 15. Whoever this man is, it says there, his appearance would be marred beyond recognition. And many nations would benefit from his priestly ministry. And as he goes into chapter 53, the eunuch learned that the servant's suffering would be for the transgressions of others. That he was willing to be denied justice, to experience injustice for the sake of others. And so the eunuch is wondering, who is this man? And am I included in the others? Just then, Philip approaches the chariot. And he hears this man reading. And in verse 30, he says, This question, do you understand what you are reading? And the man humbly replies in verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? In other words, I've got some, some big questions about my life. I have come up to Jerusalem to find the God of the Jews, and I didn't find him. All I found was this scroll. And here I am reading this scroll, but I don't understand it. And I can't understand it unless someone helps me. Can you help me? Friends, this is is an illuminating exchange that happens here. Why? This royal official, listen, this royal official represents every single human being. This man is on a quest, a journey not just a physical one, back to Africa. No, he's on a spiritual journey. He's on a quest to find God. He's on a quest to find purpose for his life, meaning for his life. He's trying to figure out why he is here and what or who he exists for. And so he went to Jerusalem, this place of worship, but because of his physical condition and his ethnicity, he couldn't get in. And now he leaves the holy city without his questions answered. And he lives about as far as Israel as one could live. Ethiopia was far beyond the borders of Rome. He is a literal citizen of the ends of the earth as far as Judaism is concerned. So his response in verse 31 is an understatement. This man needs a guide. He needs needs someone to show him the way to God. And if it's possible for him, him, the eunuch, this man, to know this God, And so when this mystery desert walker comes along and he offers this question, the man says, please tell me who this prophet is referring to. You see what Philip has done there? Philip has opened the door for the gospel by asking a strategic, carefully worded question. Look again at verse 30. Do you understand what you're reading, he asks. You see what he's doing? He's bridging the physical world with the spiritual world. How so? 
He picks out a point of commonality across all cultures that is reading. He then encourages this man to think more deeply about spiritual matters by asking if he understands. What's he doing? He's creating a setting that the Ethiopian feels comfortable to engage with Philip if he wants to. Philip is not awkward. The question is not forced. He is simply opening the door. And friends, we can do the same. We must stop overcomplicating evangelism. I recently heard Greg Gilbert give a talk on evangelism. He's a pastor of a church in Louisville. He's a, he wrote this little book, What is the Gospel? You might have on your bookshelf. But in that talk, he said this. He said, always be looking for ways to put Christianity on the table. Give permission. Give people permission to talk about spiritual things. It's an interesting way of looking at it. What does he mean? Well, he gives an example. He says, one of the easiest ways to do this is simply to introduce yourself. And when he meets someone new, what he does, maybe he's on a plane or maybe he's waiting in line somewhere. This is how he introduces himself. He's very strategic. He says, hi, I'm Greg Gilbert. I'm originally from Texas. Now I live in Louisville. He says, I'm a member of Third Avenue Baptist Church and my church forms the center of my social and the rest of my life. And these are my interests. He goes on, you would be shocked to learn that the one part that people want to talk about more than anything else is in the fact that in sharing my identity, I mentioned that I am a member of a church. He says, this does two things. The first thing it does is it saves yourself from the awkwardness of trying to insert Jesus later into the conversation. And secondly, it gives permission to people to talk about spiritual things which they are far more interested in than we realize. And his conclusion is, is that when we take this initiative, this first step, we're saying, I'm a spiritual person and these things matter to me. What happens is people's guards are let down. If they want to talk about those things, they will. If they don't want to talk about it, they won't. And so friends, in our conversations with the people that the Spirit puts on our paths, are we opening the door You just need to open it a crack. You don't have to open it all the way. You don't have to scream and look like a fool. Just open the door and invite people to think about spiritual matters. Another way I've learned from Aaron is when you're at a restaurant and your server comes to the table and you you say to your server, hey, we're gonna, we pray before we eat our meal. Uh, We're gonna be saying a prayer. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And I've gotten in the habit, Aaron, you'll be happy to know of doing that more and more at restaurants. And more and more times, I tell you, people open up. I can hardly meet a person who's not going through something. We may not be gifted evangelists, friends, but we can do the work of evangelists when we give people permission to think about spiritual things. So we're yielding to the Spirit's leading. We've opened the door for the gospel. Okay, Philip, what's next, buddy? How can we be faithful? Witnesses. He says, number three, tell the good news and leave the results to God. Verse 35, Philip opens his mouth and beginning with Isaiah 53, 7 to 8, 7 to 80, tells the eunuch, look what it says. He opens his mouth and tells him the good news about Jesus. I love that simple phrase. 
and simply, without fanfare, the eunuch believes in Jesus as Philip explains the gospel. Nothing about a physical response from this man is recorded for us. He doesn't ask Philip if he would say the sinner's prayer with him. He simply believes, and we know this is the case because in verse 36, he asks to be baptized. As an aside, if you're reading the King James Version or the New King James, you'll notice that verse 37 is not included, is included there. If you're reading the ESV, it's not included in your Bible. Verse 37 in the New King James is something like, uh, Philip says, yes, if you believe, you may be baptized. And then the man says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the reason why the ESV doesn't include verse 37 is because the earliest, most reliable manuscripts did not include that verse, which means it was later added by a scribe, maybe because he wasn't satisfied with just the inference that this man believed. And so he wanted to explicitly show that the eunuch believed. But whatever translation you have, the story does not change. The eunuch has trusted Christ. And to give proof of it, he asked to be baptized, something that no non-Jew would have ever done. And he stops the whole caravan and he gives the entire entourage something to talk, talk about when they get back to Ethiopia because he goes down into the water and immediately after they come out of the water, the spirit carried Philip away. And I love how nonchalantly Luke just says, and Philip found himself at Azotus, some 20 miles up the coast. Again, he's showing God's sovereignty over conversion by emphasizing the spirit's role here. Meanwhile, the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing, no longer with Philip in the chariot with him, but with Jesus in the chariot with him. And for a man on the margins, living at the ends of the earth, not welcomed into the temple, he becomes a temple himself for the place that Jesus can live. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's a really awesome little passage in Isaiah 56 that came to pass that day. It says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house where he wasn't allowed and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. When we were kids, my family and I used to visit my grandparents in Florida and they didn't live far from Disney and so we would take occasional day trips to Disney World when it was still affordable. And um, one year my youngest brother was of course with us and he was like five or six years old and in all the excitement in the crowds, uh, he, got, he got lost, he got separated from us. I guess he was having such a good time that it took a bit of time before he realized that he was he was separated, and I don't really remember this too well, but I kind of remember he had like a goofy hat on, 
And I just remember I had this mental image of him standing by himself. And so you can imagine if you were five years old or you have a child that was five years old. But after a bit of all the excitement, once that wore off, he, he realized that he was lost. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how to get there. He was lost. Thankfully, an employee spotted him and led him nearby to guest services. And my parents frantically ran up and were united with him. But friends, you know, I tell that story because the same is true for all people who are separated from God. They may go their whole lives having a good time until one day they realize I am lost. I don't know where I'm going and I don't know how to get there. But friends, two things had to happen for my brother to be reunited with my family. The first thing is he had to realize that he was lost. That's only the work of the Spirit. And secondly, someone had to lead him to the place where he could find us. The same thing happened between Philip and this man. The Spirit took the initiative to convict his heart of his lost condition. And then Philip came by and he showed him that the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin is Jesus's sacrifice, not the animals. And the only perfect life God will accept for your failures to obey God's law is the same, Jesus's. And so Philip just stands back and lets God do his thing. Perhaps the best news about all of this is that when we fail in evangelism, the same things that were true now of the eunuch are also true of us. Jesus has taken up residence in our hearts and we will never be cut off from the Lord no matter how poorly we do this work. So friends, in our weaknesses, as the, the Holy Spirit leads, are we letting our light shine, leaving the results to God? He's not looking for success. He's looking for faithfulness. Are we faithful? So what is faithfulness? Two brief personal stories and I'm done. I've shared with you before that one of my most vulnerable places in the world is not on the world, but far above the world in a plane. That's my desert. I'm always uncomfortable on a plane. I can't wait till I get off the plane. But that's where the Lord gives me the best gospel conversations. See, I'm like Philip a little bit. One time I met a guy, he's an older guy, older gentleman, I'll just give his name as Sam. At the time, uh, Aaron and I were preparing to plant Grace City Church. I was taking a trip up to Philadelphia and I sat next to Sam and we exchanged pleasantries. And so Sam, you know, just asked me, okay, well, what do you do? What, what are you up to? What are you flying up here for? And so I explained, well, I, I moved to Wilmington recently to plant a church. And, and so he goes, oh, that's interesting. He said, I, I grew up in an Episcopal church. He goes, he goes what, makes, what makes an Episcopal church different from your church? I was like, wow, Lord, that's a softball. <laughs> so immediately I just began sharing what we believe. And I, I was able to give in detail for two hours the gospel to this man. I even pulled out my Bible. I'm going through scriptures with him. He asked all sorts of questions. The spirit was with me the entire way. I was so at peace. I didn't care that I was on a plane. It was just an amazing thing. When we arrived in Philadelphia, we walked down to the baggage claim together and he looked at me with a big smile and he said, well, this was a fortuitous meeting. And we shook hands and he walked away. 
We connected on Facebook later on. I tried to reach out to him, but I never heard from him again. We haven't spoken since then. That's my first story. My second story is this. This past week, my family and I went to the AT&T store to do a few things with our family plan, and we're waiting in line, and uh, this guy, I'll call him Mike, Mike called us. I explained to Mike what we needed to do, and he began working on our stuff, and so we had this small talk, this chit-chat, and he, so he asked the question to me and my wife, hey, well, hey, what do you guys both do? What do you do for work? And so I answered, well, I'm a pastor, and my wife is in uh, uh, property rentals. And so Mike said, oh, you'd be interested to know, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I went to a Christian college. And so he gave the impression that he didn't have a Christian background, that he wasn't a Christian, but the school had a good program. And so we asked a few questions. We tried to engage. He was going back and forth. And after a while, I, I was just, it was late in the day. I was tired. And for much of the rest of the time, we stood there in silence and I stood there looking at him, and he stood there looking at our phones, and I just wanted to get out of there because I hit a dead end. And so I went home with another phone, cha-ching, filled with regret, filled with frustration that I didn't say more. And so the next day, I just had a time with the Lord. And I said, Lord, would you forgive me for being selfish? last night? Would you forgive me from, for withholding from Mike the news that saved me, the good news that saved me? And I asked the Lord for boldness and for greater love for the lost. So here's my question. In neither situation, as far as I know, did God save either man. He might have, but that's on him. But was I a faithful witness? With Sam? Okay, yeah, I could say yes. How about with Mike? Well, maybe not in the same way. But even then, I'm becoming a faithful witness. For in my failure to tell of the grace of Jesus to him, the same spirit who puts people on my paths and your paths and prepares hearts, that's the one that led me to the Savior for his grace, the grace of forgiveness and the grace to love the lost better. Friends, I will admit to you, I am nowhere near where I want to be in my pursuit of making much of Jesus and evangelism. Most of my evangelism takes place from this pulpit and at home with my kids. But if you're like me, and you can say the same, I'm not where I want to be in this area, friends, then take heart. A faithful witness isn't always one who shares the gospel boldly and confidently. If I could summarize my whole sermon, here, here's what a faithful witness is. We become faithful witnesses as we admit our weaknesses and keep on leaning on and telling of the grace of Jesus to others. Success in evangelism, if we can call it that at all, success is continuing to rely hour by hour on the grace that God supplies, especially when we fail, so that in all things God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. And you know, years later, when we went up to that porch in Caesarea and we listened to Philip's advice, 
a man, by the way, who is also still in need of grace, I think he would say the same. Amen? Amen.